the Bhagavad Gita, or Bhagavad the Lord Gita Song, the Song of the Lord. It is spelled B-H-A-G-A-V-A-D, Bhagavad Gita, G-I-T-A. The Song of the Lord. The Lord, in this case, being Sri Krishna, who in Hindu mythology is regarded as an incarnation, an embodiment, in the Sanskrit language, an avatar of Vishnu, the Supreme Lord, the personification of the ultimate reality underlying this universe. The Bhagavad Gita was probably compiled about the 5th century B.C., and it forms a part of a great epic called the Mahabharata. It's attributed to a sage by the name of Vyasa and contains a complete epitome of the whole central doctrine of Hinduism known as the Vedanta. It's a very fascinating and to us puzzling fact that Gandhi, preeminently the man of non-violence in modern times, was so devoted to this book. Because the scene with which the book opens is a battlefield, the field of Kuru, where a young prince by the name of Arjuna is riding in his chariot and Sri Krishna, the incarnation of Vishnu, is his charioteer. As the opposing armies face each other and the battle is about to begin and Arjuna is faint in heart, oppressed with the senselessness of this struggle and of internecine warfare. And the Gita says in the first chapter, he was overcome with great compassion and uttered this in sadness. My mouth is dry, my body trembles, my bow slips from my hand. Uncle, cousins, nephews, and Rona, my teacher, they are all there. I can't bring death to my own family. My resolution is gone. I can't defend myself. I will wait here for death. What is this mad and shameful weakness? Stand up and fight. I'm in anguish. I can't see where my duty lies. Teach me. What is Krishna doing? He's speaking to Arjuna. What is he saying? He's telling Arjuna that victory and defeat are the same. He's urging him to act, but not to reflect on the fruit of the act. He says to him, seek detachment. Fight without desire. You say, forget desire, seek detachment. Yet you urge me to battle, to massacre. Krishna tells him, don't withdraw into solitude. Renunciation is not enough. You must act, yet action mustn't dominate you. In the heart of action, you must remain free from all attachment. There's another intelligence beyond the mind.
Primarily, Arjuna's objection to taking part in war is a sentimental one. He is unwilling to fight in the battle because of his depressed emotions in regard to slaying his kinsman, or, we would say, in regard to slaying one's fellow man. If one would be a pacifist because one is merely squeamish and is the kind of person of whom one would say, well, he couldn't even hurt a fly, then surely there is something phony about such pacifism because it is sentimental. This does seem to be Arjuna's objection. And this is why Krishna says, in effect, your objection to slaying is a fear of slaying, a squeamishness to slay. And because of this, you do not have a genuine objection to slaying. If you refrain from taking part in battle because you are frightened of so doing, or because you are sentimental, you are not the kind of person who really has a right to abstain from battle. Now, why does he say this? The reason is that to the Hindu mind, one who abstains from what might be an evil action through fear has not really liberated himself from evil. Krishna would say, that so long as our conduct is motivated by fear on the one hand, or by desire on the other, we are incapable of performing a truly moral action. Only those actions are truly moral, which are unmotivated, because if you are motivated to do good by fear, your good may, under other circumstances, be evil. This is the case with Arjuna. He wants to refrain from war for the same reason for which many other people would engage in war. Many people engage in war because they're afraid, and not at all because they hate. The world's situation at the present time might be said to be a situation of mutual fear, where the only reason why someone might start a war would be for fear of the other side starting it first. After all, we all know now that modern warfare is something in which neither side wins. It is then fear more than anything else. Fear that the other fellow should send the bombs over first is what starts a war. And thus, you see, fear is no deterrent to war at all. The principle, you see, which he enunciates is to act without attachment to the fruits of action, to do what you have to do without seeking either evil or good from it. Now, this is simply another way of saying to act without motive. It seems, of course, from our point of view, impossible that a human being should act without motive. In our Western way of thinking about ethics, we judge the quality of an action by the quality of the motive. And the whole notion of an action without a motive at all seems to be extraordinarily foreign to us. But as a matter of fact, if there is no such thing as an action without motive, 
there is no such thing as a free or moral action. Because, so long as we have a motive, our actions are not actions, they are simply reactions. Surely it's obvious that our motives are determined by our conditioning, by our environment, our heredity, our social structure. They give us motives, and these motives of the past determine the way in which we act. Now, if my motive for doing good is for the sake of some sort of a reward, whether it's in the ancient sense of going to heaven or the modern sense of being a real person or a regular guy, or whether it's a fear in the ancient sense of going to hell or in the modern sense of being a cad, I act motivatedly. And therefore the things which I do by way of moral action are not actually free. If, as we in the West have rather inconsistently but nevertheless rightly insisted, a moral man must be a free man, a free man must be an unmotivated man. How can one reach the truth if one is born in illusion? Slowly, Krishna led Arjuna through all the fibers of his spirit. He showed him the deepest movements of his being and his true battlefield, where you need neither warriors nor arrows, where each man must fight alone. It's the most secret knowledge. He showed him the whole of truth. He taught him how the world unfolds. Tell me who you are. I'm shaken to the depths. I'm afraid. I am all that you think. All that you say. Everything hangs on me, like pearls on a thread. I am the earth's scent and the fire's heat. I am appearance and disappearance. I am the trickster's hopes. I am the radiance of all that shines. I am time grown old. All beings fall into the night. And all beings are brought back to daylight. I have already defeated all these warriors. But he who thinks he can kill, and he who thinks he can be killed, both mistaken. No weapon can pierce the life that informs you. No fire can burn it. No water can drench it. No wind can make it dry. Have no fear and rise up because I love you. Now you can dominate your mysterious and incomprehensible spirit. You can see its other side. Act as you must act. I myself am never without action. Rise up. My illusion is dissolved. My error destroyed. By your grace now I am firm. My doubts are dispersed. Now, it's obvious, I think, to those of you who have listened to any other of these programs, what Sri Krishna is talking about here. 
When I was talking to you about the Upanishads, I explained at several points the fundamental doctrine of the Hindus. And that is that the innermost reality of man is not quite, quite what we who have been brought up in a Christian tradition call the soul. We have an inherited teaching, of course, of an immortal and individual soul, which is the root principle of every human being. But in the Hindu doctrines, the soul is not individual. The soul is supra-individual, or, as they would say in their technical language, the Atman, the soul or self, Self is really a better translation than soul. The Atman is identical with Brahman. And Brahman is the name which they use for the ultimate reality which underlies this whole universe. Now, I don't want you to think of Brahman as a sort of vast blob of perfectly transparent jello which penetrates the whole world. I, I think that's what many people imagine when they hear this kind of thing. The whole point of the Brahman idea is missed. When you form any image of it in your mind at all, even jello, even empty space or boundless light, Brahman is what we ourselves really are, what this whole universe is fundamentally and actually. There is no way of thinking about, of imagining that. For the very simple reason that as water cannot rise higher than its own level, thought cannot think what is higher than thinking. It cannot conceive the mind which thinks, and still less, the power which generates the mind. Our symbols for, our ideas about this supreme reality, are vagueish and voidish. Not at all because that reality is vague and void, but because thought and imagination are annihilated in trying to grasp it. And thus, it is through the realization that he is that eternal now, not his past, that Arjuna is able to act in a free way, in an unmotivated way, and thus go into battle, not because he is moved to fight by hate, by squeamishness or fear, but because he carries out his appointed place in a society in which it's his vocation to be a warrior. We may think it regrettable that societies exist in which there is a vocation to be a warrior, but let's not be sentimental in this respect also. Because every one of us is unable to live at all without killing something. Some of us would like to rule out altogether the killing of our fellow men. But you see, in the Hindu view of life, there isn't this rigid distinction between man on the one hand and animals and plants on the other, which exists for us in the West. Therefore, there are times in the Hindu view when killing is an unavoidable condition of being alive. And this is one of the problems which the Gita sets itself to solve.